0: Welcome to Blockchain Recorded, the podcast for the tech curious, where we talk about anything and everything related to the exponentially evolving crypto, blockchain, and Web 3.0 space. Our mission is simple to share knowledge, facilitate discourse, and help evolve education in blockchain fundamentals, decentralization solutions, and relevant use cases for today's digital economy. I'm your host, Nina Tserar. Today's episode is part two of our two part highlights showreel series in honoring the end of our second podcast season. Our team prepared a showreel of conversations that resonate with us and remind us why we do what we do. Today you will hear highlights from the following guests in season two. Ramsey from Kabocha, Tali Rajoun from Block Labs, Nadab Zemmer from HS Credits, Nevin Freeman from Reserve, Denison Bertram from Tali, Laurent Perello from Tron Dow, and Matthew Baudet from Linera. Again, we are grateful to everyone in our community of guests, sponsors, and listeners. Without your support, we would not be who we are today. Enjoy part two. Before we begin, this podcast is possible by our sponsor at Ambire. The Ambire wallet is one of the top products in crypto asset management. It is the first open source non-custodial smart wallet that delivers exceptional user experience combined with solid security. With Ambire wallet, users can easily navigate the world of Web3. It comes packed with features like built-in swaps, cross-chain bridges, integrated earning opportunities, and more. In addition, Ambire offers things like human readable transaction parsing, eliminating ERC-20 approvals, and front-running protection. The smart Wallet uses gas abstractions that allow for unique features like paying for gas with stable coins. Users can batch multiple transactions to save time and gas fees. The wallet also supports NFTs and allows you to connect to any dApp via Wallet Connect. You can use it with an email and password or add hardware wallets or hot wallets as signers to upgrade your security. And the best part? Ambire speaks human. The UI is friendly and informative ensuring you understand what you're doing and eliminating risks for mistakes. Ambire Wallet users are currently eligible for continuous wallet token rewards to learn more and get your Ambar account today visit www.ambire.com that is a m b i r e.com so today we have with us ramsey who is the technical steward for the kabocha project he's a technical startup founder systems architect and blockchain engineer ramsey welcome to blockchain recorded
1: thanks for having me nina
0: so kabocha, yeah, kabocha, are we? Are you ready to answer the question where <laughs> kabocha comes in?
1: Yeah. So I mean, like kabocha is the first um, kind of uh, embodiment of mm. um, EdgeWare's multi-chain philosophy. Mm. Multi-chain um, EdgeWare was more um, leaning towards Ethereum sort of mm-hmm. philosophy of being this kind of single-chain build DApps on top of approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and now me myself being one of the people that want to kind of send it into a different trajectory, which is to go into the design philosophy of the multi-chain. And so it's a new kind of, this is a new concept. It's like challenging to kind of cope, deal with, you know, it's like, you know, we're used to having, being a community with, um, you know, crypto communities are used to just being like one community, one token and one chain and one, or just one like dApp. But now I guess with multi-chain use like you can be one community or one ecosystem that has multiple chains in it and they mm-hmm. each and it's like this under the underlying infrastructure is is has relay chains, it has parachains, it has bridges between multiple relay chains, and it's this like different fab- different underlying fabric there. And so like Kobocha is a um, uh, a project that's funded by the Edgeware Treasury.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's um uh, initial purpose is to be a parachain in the Kusama network
2: mm-hmm. and the name
1: Kobocha came around to resonate more with the, the feeling of Kusama. Kusama is an artist mm-hmm. than, I think, in a uh, polka dot artist. She actually pioneered polka dots.
0: Yeah so she she uses polka dots everywhere she
1: uses polka dots everywhere she made she made basically polka dots the thing mm. and and um she was in like the gallery she's like in the tape gallery in here in London, mm-hmm. and like she's everywhere she's mm-hmm. got and she's her favorite thing she's like obsessed with pumpkins mm-hmm. like these like types of pumpkins that she's designed so we just called it pump we just called it what well, she called it there but like Very botcha, cool. just to just
0: just to continue mm, to the the connection
1: yeah, to continue yeah, to continue that sort of like pithy narrative. And um and Edgeware, we're we kind of like we got a chip on our shoulder, like the Edgeware community, like we're kind of outsiders. This Edgeware's always been like a group of outsiders from parity, the community of Edgeware showing up in kusama Okay, we're kabocha. And uh yeah, so it's like and it's a it's a birth, like we're birth we're a chain giving birth to a new chain. And that's kind of a new thing. Like typically so are you- centralized comp- centralized like uh, foundations or startups setting up a chain and uh, mm-hmm. starting from there. But we're actually already a chain giving birth, getting funded and like giving birth to a new chain.
0: And you're a separate kind of chain fun. of edgeware.
1: Yeah, we're a separate chain. And how we, sim- how we're, how we're linked is that we're taking a snapshot of all the ed- edgeware balances and persisting them into so, like everyone that has, like, uh, so basically the distribution is going to be pretty much the same, mm. give or take, new crowd loan participants and new contributors to Kabocha. And so, yeah, so we are completely separate chains, but similar community, or same community, same ecosystem, uh, a sort of subset of the community, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, teams um within the community working on a project within within our ecosystem we're we're trying to like one kind of perspective is like you know we're tr- if there was you know if we were to do these large tech corporations in a decentralized way you know how would it what would it be like you know mm-hmm. look at look at google they have all sorts of projects going on they have uh, you know they're working on you know they started with search now they're into Manipulating people to, for the you know to get advertising <laughs> revenue, oh, and also oh, you got AI, and you got like autonomous cars and things like that.
0: Yeah, I think we're, they're probably doing stuff beyond what we what we know. But yeah, I get your point.
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah. But like, but the the, the point was is like, they, there's all sorts of teams doing all sorts of things. Right. You know, it's like it's, it's a huge it's a huge organism at, mm-hmm. at Google. You know, and it's like one hundred or one hundred thousand or so employees mm. um, people working there. Obviously, it's got quite a Steep hierarchical very much structure yeah. structure of, of executive power sort of thing, mm-hmm. and you know what, it, what it, so we're thinking of like designing a different sort of system in mm-hmm. it. Like we're trying to see what it's like to create technology that doesn't have that kind of that has more of a flat kind of structure um, in terms of comp-
0: hierarchy. You mean
1: in terms of like hierarchy? You know, we've got a there is there you know there it, it is it is quite flat. You know, you can turn up to edgeware community mm-hmm. and like build a little reputation so people mm-hmm. you know so you just ha- you know, hang around there a bit you know show some show value give your perspectives mm-hmm. you know and you very quickly you can build a reputation there you know be of use of some some in some way sweep a few floors like a, a nice analogy uh for edgeware at least my experience coming through edgeware is it's kind of like an ashram for founders or an ashram for creators and developers huh. to, to, to come in, you know, meditate a bit on blockchain, sweep a few floors. And then once you get, you know, enlightened mm.
0: um,
1: to do your own project, you can then get funded by the treasury, by
0: the treasury, Edgeware's Treasury, treasury,
1: Edgeware's treasury to do mm. your, to do a project that the community thinks is, um, cool or valuable or, you know, important in some way.
0: And just to and, give a concrete example. So th- this is not just for developers. You can do, I mean, what kinds of projects within this ecosystem? I mean, you're talking about, it, you don't have to be a developer to join.
1: You don't have to be a developer to join No, um,
0: Cause I think it can be some somewhat intimidating, you know, for, for sort of the lay person, they think, Oh, you have to be a developer to know, you know, code and
1: absolutely no, I, that's understandable.
0: Because um, the you know, aim is not not just that.
1: The aim is not just that. It's like the way I see these decentralized organizations, and I'm intentionally not calling them DAOs
2: because mm-hmm.
1: DAOs are layer two DApps mm-hmm. on a blockchain, so they don't have total sovereignty over. Mm-hmm you know they're not they can't be self de- they don't have self determination o- over all the decision making about you know the underlying infrastructure you know mm. like the fees they can't have control over the fees they don't have control over uh, whether there's a fork and whether that there's a consensus amongst the wider ecosystem to take to to choose to make to do that fork and what's going to happen to the assets in their DAP you know that are connected to other physical assets how does that work you know there's going to be mm-hmm. they don't have sovereignty over everything so the uh, decentralized organizations like edgeware we are it's, it's almost more potent than a DAO because it has control over its underlying infrastructure it can make design choices it can it can change it can make changes over anything it wants mm-hmm. including the fees and it's not uh, affected by external as many external factors so it's uh, so that's i just wanted to preface preface um, what i was saying with that because i think that's quite important knowing the distinction between a DAO and a a DAO on a chain, a decentralized Mm -hmm. organization. And a decentralized organization is essentially a new way of making a company or a new way of making uh, an organization of human beings, be Mm -hmm. it a state, a company, Mm -hmm. or anything, any sort of um, label that you want to put on uh, humans organizing.
0: My guest today is Tali Rejun, whom I've hosted before on our show. Last time we talked about his fourth tech project and initiative, this time will be slightly different as I will talk with Tali about the development of Block Labs, his dedication to Web3 R&D, and a further dive into on-chain communication privacy. After finishing his doctorate, Tali established Block Labs and Fourth Tech and less than a year ago co-founded the show. Tali is also a guest lecturer at, in the Contruli MBA program, a blockchain Adria resident speaker, and a UNCE fact expert. Tali, welcome back to our blockchain recorded podcast. I promise to our listeners to be as objective as possible since we are co-founders of the show. Thanks, Sina. Good to be back. Given you have years of tech development behind you, who exactly is we when you refer to we? Um, how did you go about setting
3: up your development team? Yes. Yeah, so we, we, in this case, is, is uh, me and my, and my dream team. And your dev team? <laughs> is this mostly your dev team? Yeah. Team team? So uh, um, I was lucky in this regard. Basically, I met Denis in uh, November 2017, I think, uh, and Andre mm-hmm. joined us in the early 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, we launched mm-hmm. our first wallet-to-wallet data file exchange protocol in April 2018 on Ethereum mainnet. There were quite some experimental Web3 developments done from 2018 to 2020. Uh, we developed on-chain data notarization and uh, C-chain UNEC pilot that connects the X590 identity standard with an on-chain wallet. Mm-hmm. So Peter joined the third member in the dev team, basically Peter joined in early 2020s and made a great addition to the team. Um, so with our Ethereum DMail, we managed to accumulate quite a user base until Ethereum transaction prices went up to unsustainable levels. There were no layer twos at the time, so we were searching for an alternative and start to develop the same solutions on Rust-based edgeware substrate. We were always tackling with the uh, messaging, on-chain messaging possibility until Solana uh there were just no alternatives so um for Mm -hmm. the on-chain messaging that we had in mind that would be fully on chain um the blockchains at the time were just too slow Uh, so we were basically um already rust versed from our uh, edgeware built so then solana came and it was really a no-brainer and uh with the completed team the development Mm -hmm. uh started also on the dchat front let's say so mm-hmm. that's that's is, that is how we started and that is how we gathered and uh, formed as a, as a team um just to clarify you
0: mentioned dmail dchat um because since we previously also spoke uh in, a, in an episode are these new names because well, you mentioned
3: before 4dx yeah, but, um, 4im yes rebrand um, or, or say rename yeah uh, it's quite simple if uh, uh, if could be explained basically for the last uh, four years we were developing uh, framework and protocols mm-hmm. for the web 3 communication mm-hmm. um, so for example uh, the 4dx for data exchange mm-hmm. is a protocol mm-hmm.
2: uh,
3: and a smart contract name mm-hmm. that is um, deployed uh, and it creates the foundation for products such as, uh, let's, let's say, Dmail. Okay. Oh, I see. I see. And then we have the 4IM, which is the instant messaging. Mm-hmm. The same, it's a protocol that is um, developed behind the product such as uh, DChat. I see. Yeah,
0: I see. So protocol name versus product name.
3: Yes. Yes.
0: So it, nothing was replaced. It's it's still you just uh, added the the product names.
3: Yeah, we are now at the stage that we are we started to developing products mm-hmm. out of the technology. Can
0: you briefly just guide us through the tech releases again?
3: Yeah, just to, to clarify, basically Tech is an end user public blockchain platform developed mm-hmm. by Block Labs. The evolution reaches back to 2018, when the first beta or uh, 1.0 was deployed on Ethereum mainnet, proving our concept of secure private encrypted wallet-to-wallet data file exchange protocol. The C-Chain, which is uh, enterprise hashnet-based DLT protocol, was um, the C-Chain integration and network support followed in 2020s which is now open to the public as a part of the staging environment, so anybody can go and test it. Uh, then the 2.0 update followed in uh, early 2021, that brought data notarization, upgraded on-chain identity, for wallet support for all Chromium and Firefox browsers, uh, and added Substrate and Solana blockchain support. Uh, so if we go a little bit, if we touch on the future, the coming 3.0 update which is planned for the end of this year or the early, let's say, 2023, will be the biggest uh, where finally all the pieces will come together in a unified modern design, power by state-of-the-art code and architecture.
0: Very interesting. Um, We all use free email and messaging services. Uh, In fact, we depend on them to be our main daily communication tools. Um, But clearly there's something broken here. Uh, privacy is being violated. Our data is exploited. Actually, just 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 today, I had a few phone calls, random phone calls from from different parts of the world, <laughs> um, knowing that that's not a number that I know. So, our data is exploited. What is the problem of the currently centralized communication and social systems?
3: Yeah. So, <clears throat> the internet uh, changed the way uh, we live. It opened the highway to unlimited communication and revolutionized access to information but I think it failed greatly in regards to our digital freedom and privacy Mm -hmm. so instead of providing a safe environment for uh, online communication the internet evolved into a system of uh, centralized intermediaries Mm -hmm. which enable mass surveillance data mining uh, to enforce intrusive ad campaigns or sell our data as they see fit Mm
2: -hmm. so
3: Furthermore, I think that the current Web2 services establish models that uh, prevents us from owning our data or or our identities. So the current model is just uh, not okay.
0: No, definitely not. Um, Most people might not even understand what is behind online communication platforms and social media today. Um, Some actually may not even care, Um, many who I've spoken to, which I actually find disturbing. What are your thoughts here?
3: It's quite simple uh, in the end, but most people, like you said, don't understand it or Mm -hmm. basically don't care about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Online free communication platforms, which we use every day from social media to email services, chats, whatever, are not quite that free. Okay. Uh, the data in the form of um, data files or media files that we create is being used to generate significant insights for big technology companies and are being sold to the third parties uh, as they generate more profit than the underlying service cost mm. okay so this is one thing that 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 we must be uh, that we must understand
2: mm-hmm.
3: on the outside the services are free or low cost, but we are paying greatly with the loss of privacy. Mm -hmm. So companies make revenues by advertising product to us, uh, many Mm -hmm. products. We are just tourists visiting their closed ecosystems, creating valuable content for free and spending valuable time and money in the end. Mm -hmm. So we are tourists that can be banned or locked out of the services. Mm at at any time for Mm. just or unjust reasons um, without any chance of an appeal Mm -hmm. so we do not own our own identities we do not own our published data nor we don't hold any control over the services access Uh, we cannot move our social accounts to the other platforms uh, nor we cannot not not move um, our social network that we establish and create Mm -hmm. Uh, during the years. So that's just the case in the current Web2 world.
0: Um, How does a project like yours differ from the centralized platforms that you mentioned?
3: Yeah, there are a lot of major differences. Um, For example, we build an open code on decentralized public systems, 100% aligned with decentralized uh, ideology. We defend transparency, immutability, and uh, permissionless clearly there are also big technological differences between us and centralized communication services for example we enable wallet to wallet on chain communication that is end to end encrypted mm-hmm. and um, at its core prevents data mining data theft email spoofing identity theft mm-hmm. uh, in the case of fortech the dmail and dchat onboarding requir- requires no phone number or no email address mm-hmm. Your wallet represents your ID. Your wallet address serves as your email or chat contact. We don't want user's data and we don't need it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: how further, so furthermore, how does a centralized
3: platform work? The case is completely opposite when we are dealing with uh, centralized systems. Uh, the centralized messenger service, for example, mm-hmm. stores all of our data on their centralized servers. Mm-hmm. Okay, which are always one vulnerable to spoof, that is, single point of failure attacks. In the Fortex case, messages are temporarily stored on the Solana blockchain, never on any company servers. Mm-hmm. So there's the matter of uh, encryption. Fortex messages are end-to-end encrypted, where only user can decrypt them using his or her private key. In the case of centralized messaging services, in most cases master keys master private keys are usually held by the service if we are mm. talking about encryption uh, mm-hmm. encryption solutions
0: so anyone can already you mentioned in terms of emails can anyone start sending them um meaning what does a user need to know and do even for someone
3: who's new to the crypto wallet concept anyone could could start to send or exchange emails uh, right now uh, using our our fortex services which are meant for the end users, uh, only the wallet is needed. In our case, we had to develop a unique, non-custodial, multi-chain wallet that supports wallet-to-wallet data exchange. So users set up their wallets in any Chromium or Mozilla browser, log in to the user interface, and they're good to go. Naturally, some gas is needed to power the blockchain transactions. Uh, This depends on the chosen chain because there are multi-chain available. Um, yeah, so there's also a white label available for DAOs or other Web3 projects.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so for newbies who are more familiar with um, with the crypto protocols, wh- where do you find this wallet to set up um, in the mentioned browsers?
3: In our case, uh, its um, wallet links are available on Fortech.io. Um, oh, okay, your webpage. Yeah, mm-hmm. of course, it's it's the same. The, plus, yeah. we uh, we wrote all these manuals and uh, mm-hmm. recorded mm-hmm. videos.
0: So today we have with us Nadav Zemmer. Nadav, or Principal Z, as most refer to him as, is a software engineer from his early days, an educator, a public high school principal, actually freshly former high school principal, writer, Web3 researcher, thought leader, founder, and the list goes on. He's the author of the book called Education in the Digital Age, How We Get There. Where he offers an evaluation of how digital technology and economics are poised to transform education by examining the concept of academic capital. He dives into the reengineering of high school credits and using blockchain technology for the credits ledger system, all topics that we will try to cover today. So Principal Z does not just work at the intersection of technology and education, but is truly aiming to revolutionize the way education is carried out, also with the help of his project HS.Credit. He is first tackling later years in public high school, primarily in the U.S., but hopefully with time, beyond borders as well. So, with that, Nadav, welcome to the show. I've really been looking forward to this podcast.
4: Nina, so have I, I've got to say, I've been on a lot of podcasts, and the way um, just you've engaged so far, and how much you know about the project—it's um, this is an incredible podcast. And I've gone back and listened to your to your stream. Um, it's really an honor to be here.
0: Well, thank you. Thank for that. We're based in uh, Central Eastern Europe, and our non-American audience, we do actually have a lot of um, U.S. people, but our non-American audience may not fully understand the concept of high school credits. Um, And given that you said that you've also, um, you were in France, you're probably familiar with that. So what are credits, just briefly? Why do you need them? Why do we care about them? How does this differ from maybe the private high school system, if at all? So sort of a compound question, but...
4: Yeah. So to issue a diploma in the state of New York with the New York state seal on it, to call it a New York state high school diploma, um, students need to show that they've graduated high school. And they define that in terms of these credits, Mm -hmm. Um, 22 annualized credits. And in New York, it's actually, I I know the uh, traditional Carnegie was 120 hours. In New York, it's actually 108 hours of studying a topic where your teacher certifies that you met, their requirements. And uh, sometimes there's an exam associated with um, certain content areas as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in New York, in particular, we're something called the regents exam. So yeah, the a unit is just a, it's a measure of uh, learning. So if we we're talking just now about the ledger of accounts, this is what's collected in the ledger is credits of, um, you know, and that if you collect enough of them, you get to graduate.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and just For my personal understanding, do you do you have in mind the application of your concept outside of the U.S.? Because right now you're focusing locally, correct?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And um, you had mentioned before that we'll get talked about the DAO, which we never get talked about. Um, So it's um, that that connects to this question, because what I would say is anyone that wants to take this and apply it somewhere outside the u.s come we'll give you everything you know and we'll help you set up the DAO and go for it um i i don't know your systems well enough i couldn't um i'm not the person that can do that um in my team we're not the right but we have what we have and part of it will be useful to you and part of it you'll invent things that will come back and benefit us right so um we've we've had a relationship in the past with somebody in finland um Mm -hmm. they're and so we have these conversations, um, we're going to focus. I'm, I'm really focused on New York city. I don't even know more than that. I think, you know, I have friends in rural um, districts. I have, you know, I, and I grew up in Chicago and I, I know other school districts, but, mm-hmm. um, my focus i think um just in terms of high leverage if i can get new york to flip um, that's going to be a strong start
0: i'm wondering how did so how did you come up with the idea behind an open source blockchain ledger of you talk about gold standard high school credits what does the gold standard consist of
4: when you speak yeah. up about- yep so the word gold um and and remember this idea originally came from me thinking of bitcoin as a ledger Mm -hmm. right and that's thought of as digital gold so it's it's similar right there's a soft fiat money that you can print at will for the benefit of politicians there are these soft fiat credits Mm -hmm. that politicians are printing they're actually the incentives right now and so it's all about incentives and the incentives of gold versus the incentives of fiat and hard credits versus soft credits so Mm -hmm. the incentives of soft credits is that each politician should be able to turn some knobs so that graduation rates tick up every year so that the headlines don't say graduation rates tick down this year, right? Beyond the election year, especially. So they need to have that control to do that. And so they just keep issuing more credits. Um, in, you know, just to, just to have that inching up and so the incentives really drive us to get to meaningless credits, which is what we have now, a high school diploma from a school you never heard of in an inner city, um, you could get that and not know how to read in some cases, in some schools you get that and it means you're very well educated, right? It's a really school by school basis. And that's the whole point of a a transcript and a credit is to have something that's not um, localized to each school. So the gold standard is uh, a few things are involved in that. One, right now, teachers evaluate their own students for the credits and the students give them puppy eyes and, you know, and sad stories and, and whatever else and get grades that they probably shouldn't get. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and because kids are, you know, amazing social engineers. Of course. Um, and adults are not yet, <laughs> right? And I mean, maybe they should get credit for that. Maybe that's the credit that's even more important. So maybe they should get the credit in the end. I don't know. But sure. the, the hard credits are evaluated by pseudonymous credit experts on our platform. Three of them evaluate every credit. So that's the first part of hard. It's evaluated externally um, according to a common rubric. And there's no preference um, and connection like that. The other piece of it is that it's not based on standardized thinking and standardization. Right. It's based on that. It's not based on the push model where the, you know, the people behind, you know, it's, it's shocking that until this day, I can still say a bunch of white guys in a room, Um, it was one woman they led in this time with the common core standards. But until now, there's only been one woman led into the room of designing these standards, it's all white guys and they create the right. It's pretty amazing. And they create these, how everybody should think just like me. And then they, you know, get these textbooks that tell you what's important and what's not important and don't even tell you about the stuff that's not important because it's not in the book. Right. And it it kind of flows down and then kids don't know how to, you you know, what's the internet, right. And and schools are scared of the internet because there's all this, you know, misinformation on there instead of teaching kids the skills to find the right information on there because it's this amazing textbook that's better than any textbook they have so the gold credit is not based on standardization it's based on project-based learning and this is not cutting-edge stuff this is the stuff that rudolph steiner was teaching 150 years ago this is what we did before industrial schooling so we're going back to the ancient ways of teaching and with microphones even more the oral traditions right so um, it's getting back to how the brain works, having experiences that you never forget in high school, having the high school experience and the school experience in general, be a magical time where you're discovering your potential and exploring ideas, you know, um, and getting onto the real world, interacting with people, especially in the 11th and 12th grade. So the gold standard is really just performance-based assessment mm-hmm. that's high stakes. High stakes, performance-based assessment. That's really all I'm talking about.
0: So today with us, we have Nevin Freeman. He's the co-founder and CEO of Reserve, where he oversees strategy, legal, and team coordination. Nevin is an entrepreneur who has co-founded three companies. His purpose is to solve the coordination problems that are stopping humanity from achieving its potential. And he's particularly concerned about averting the long-term risks posed to by the development of artificial intelligence. So on that note, Nevin, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us today
5: yeah, thanks for having me. Nice to meet you, Nina.
0: I have been following you for some time now, uh, actually, and the work you do is, I think, is remarkable. Um, you give crypto a meaningful, humanitarian and much needed use case. That's uh, actually really admirable,
5: yeah. I mean, the thing that we're trying to do is kind of just like the original idea of cryptocurrency, right? is is sort mm-hmm. of, Uh, creating a form of money that is not dependent on governments um, and uh, that's free and open and accessible to anybody. So in a a sense, you know, the idea behind it isn't very inventive at all. But we've had to come up with a, a bunch of ideas for how to try to make that work in practice.
0: Yeah. um, Well, you you advocate for access to stable currencies um, to be considered a human right. right. Let's switch a little bit. And actually, there are two quotes from your website that caught my attention. And I know that you speak about this immensely. So the first one is stable currency, a human right. Right. And then the second yep. one is a stable, decentralized and inflation resistant world reserve currency not pegged to any one fiat currency. Now, I know the latter is your long term mission at Reserve <laughs> yep. and you've discussed both topics at length already. But can you just briefly speak to this?
5: Yeah, um, yeah, we, we realized uh, maybe a year or so ago, um, you know, we we're trying to distill this attitude that we have about um, about it being very important for people to have access to stable currency. And we realize that humanity kind of does have a framework for talking about which things are like truly essential um, to, uh, you know, in, in the words of, I think, the UN, like living a dignified human life. And that's the idea of a human right. And, you know, it's it's, I mean, rights are kind of weird things. It's like, how do you decide if something should be a right or not? But one way of thinking about it is like, you know, if we sort of agree that it's essential to a functioning, uh, flourishing life, and if it's something that really is within reach of offering to everybody, um, you know, at a relatively low cost, um, then we tend to consider it a right. It's like, you know, clean, you know, access to clean, clean, you know, drinking water or something, for example, it's like, everybody needs it. And it's like, Yeah. It seems like we can do that. You know, it seems like something that's, that's not particularly difficult, you know, as opposed to, for example, I don't know, like, like, let's say like, you know, I'm just making this up. So maybe this is going to be a weird example, but like, um, you can imagine saying like, well, mental health is a human right, and everyone should be mentally healthy, because if you're not mentally healthy, then, you know, your experience is going to be bad and full of suffering and and problems, and you'll make bad decisions and so on. But Mm -hmm. we don't know how to offer mental health to everybody. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a very complicated thing. And so it wouldn't make sense for us to decide it's a human right, because, you know, we just don't know how to offer it. And Stable currency is kind of interesting because you could argue that it's like mental health where it's like, well, you know, it's a very, you know, economics are very complicated currency and markets and so on are very complicated. And so maybe there is actually no way to guarantee access to a stable unit of currency to everybody. But our attitude is kind of like, yeah, sort of, but like technologically speaking, um, it actually doesn't seem out of reach. It actually seems like the forces that make it so that uh, some populations don't have access to stable currency are often political or legal. Um, and if we just sort of were willing to use the technology and knowledge at our disposal, we actually could provide access to stable currency to, um, to many more people or to everybody. And so like these days, you know, we're doing that by basically opening up the access to the US dollar um, to people who maybe would have had a harder time getting that access because the US dollar is relatively stable. And then in the long term, you know, we're sort of looking for a way to, to not even depend on something like the U.S. dollar um, so that we could actually, from a technological perspective, offer that stability to the entire world indefinitely. Um, but again, it's like it really ends up being like a legal or political challenge to do that, I think.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, you have you have strong knowledge regarding stable coins, given everything that I've listened to. I mean, we all know USDT and USDC and the and the recent Terra and um, downfall. But in fact, you actually warned about the uh, Algo stable coins a few years ago. I'm sure everybody asked you this at the, at the Latin American Bitcoin and Blockchain Conference. Um, mm-hmm. I also saw the video you posted on your blog trying to explain it. I think it would be beneficial for our listeners to get a wider perspective, um, but I I wanted to ask you what, if anything has changed or reaffirmed in your perspective post the Terra collapse?
5: Yeah. Um, hopefully you're not sick of talking about it, but (laughs) no, 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 I'm not, I'm not. It's it's a good question. What has changed? I mean, the thing is like, we'd already seen the senior shares model be tried and fall apart a few times. And so in a sense, I would say very little has changed in my perspective. You know, it sort of, it sort of was obvious to us upon just thinking it through without even seeing any examples. And then the examples have kind of confirmed uh, what was, what was suspected. I do feel like though, this is like a slightly more powerful confirmation because, you know, there's the, the, the people who were believers in that idea would say, well, yes, this thing has the potential to fall apart, but so long as demand is maintained, the, the party will keep going, you know, it's sort of like as, as long as the music is playing, um, right. it's fine. And, uh, and there was a way in which, you know, Tara and, and Doe in particular, um, you know, Exerted a really powerful reality distortion field, which you know ultimately ended up being the cause of all of this destruction. But you know, before the collapse, you you couldn't really be a hundred percent confident that they wouldn't somehow manage to pull it off to just keep the music going forever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I think that having something uh, having a, a senior share style stablecoin fall apart at that scale, even with you know an enormously powerful marketing force and and quite a big war chest and an enormous community of believers and so on. having that fall apart, um, I think just makes it that much more obvious how quickly, the sentiment can shift on these things, right? And that's something where you know you, you can you can theorize about market participants and how they will act in different situations. But I think that this really concretely illustrated that people who were believers can go to being non-believers in literally a matter of minutes, yeah. just by seeing uh, something happen on the charts and in, in in the liquidity pools and so on that they didn't expect. Where you know they were so confident, um, and then and then as soon as, as as, as soon as everyone starts to see, um, that the thing is unraveling, you know, that sentiment can just be so self-referential. And so we had theorized that that's what would happen. Um, but to really see it on that scale, I think, you know, it's easier to sort of believe it in your gut at this point.
0: Mm -hmm. I actually also, I, um, I remember a tweet that you um, actually put out that you said that we need a stablecoin grandma index to show real world adoption. Uh, I love that. And also make sure that no algo stablecoins rise again. So stablecoin grandma index. Um, <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the stablecoin grandma index, you know, it's somewhat tongue in, tongue in cheek, but I actually think it's a cool idea. It's like, you know, awesome. it's basically just like how many grandmas use yeah. any given stablecoin. Right? right. And uh, I said, partially, Jokingly, although I do actually think this is true, maybe true that yeah. re- I think reserve is maybe used by more grandmas than any other stablecoin because it's used as ordinary money in, in some countries in Latin America. And yeah, and then the idea is like if any algo stablecoin started to creep up on the grandma index, that's real cause for concern. You know, it's, it's sort of okay in my book if crypto degens want to experiment with whatever they want to experiment with. You know, they can have smart contracts that are just transparent Ponzi schemes. And as long as it's just gamblers gambling as gamblers, than like okay fine you know have your fun um you know what really what I really don't like is when people you know believe that the thing that they're using is going to be stable and is going to preserve their savings and then it doesn't um mm-hmm. so so yeah so if anyone out there wants to start the stablecoin grandma index uh you know <laughs> send me a DM I'll uh, I'll help you get it off the ground <laughs>
0: we'll put in the show notes <laughs>
5: yeah <laughs>
0: um well let's let's uh, talk about reserve so reserve you're a co-founder if I'm not mistaken so you lead the R token trial. Yep. Um, and are responsible for developing and promoting your um, smart contract protocol and including decentralized governance. Um, just side note, are you aiming to eventually become a DAO?
5: Um, yes, but in a sort of different way from how a lot of projects do it, because each R token that is uh, governed in a decentralized way kind of has its own DAO. And so it's sort of like uh, all of the stable coins that get created on top of the reserve um, protocol will sort of be individual DAOs. Um, And then, you know, and then there is a question about like, what about the the project overall in terms of like, uh, you know, making like developing improvements to the base protocol and so on. and so there, we we have ideas for how to uh, basically decentralize the project further. Um, there's there's some a few things that we're still exploring and haven't solidified on how to do that yet. So I guess I won't say one thing or another because I don't want to misinform. But um, but generally speaking, that yeah, the idea is to you know to get to the point where the project is fully decentralized on the protocol side, both in terms of the ongoing development um, and uh, and the individual R tokens. And, and one thing about that is that. You could have one R token get pretty popular, and then a bunch of people could, you know, write a bunch of code that upgrades sort of the protocol, the instance of the protocol that R token's running, and other R tokens may not use those updates. So actually, over the course of time, um, there might not even be one coherent effort to um, improve... You know the reserve protocol because the reserve protocol really is just a template that you can use to make um, to make different instances. Um, and so it's actually going to look like a series of DAOs.
0: So today I speak with Denison Bertram, the founder of Tally, a DAO operations platform. Tally provides tools for decentralized decision making and governance for distributed ledger ecosystems. In my conversation with Dennison, we will try to introduce the basics of DAOs and take them further in terms of their role in the Web3 ecosystem, their legal implementations, their tools and use cases, and of course, wherever our DAO conversation takes us along the way. So Dennison, welcome to our podcast.
6: Thank you for having me, Nina.
0: You entered crypto well before the Web3 term became a thing. Uh, You created a Bitcoin exchange 10 years ago or a little over 10 years ago, founded various crypto-related projects. So one of them is Tally, like I just mentioned. Uh, Yet you're also a renowned fashion and commercial photographer, having shot for some of the world's top brands, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So that's uh, truly fascinating and an eclectic background. So I'm just curious, I know you've spoken a lot about your background um, and your path, but enlighten us. And uh, I'm just curious, what brought you to Europe and and namely the Czech Republic, where you founded the
6: Bitcoin exchange and the OG days? So uh, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, But I came to Europe in the early 2000s because um, I kind of wanted to change. I was, uh, you know... I just started university, Um, America didn't really feel like the place for me at the time. America still actually looked different. People sort of think that 20 years is not very long, but actually America looked very different. And at the time, I felt like being a person of color, trying to be in tech was very difficult. I mean, frankly really racist and I didn't feel like I had time for that shit, mm. to be frank. yeah. Um, so so I left because I just wasn't interested in dealing with it. And that was totally the right move.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: So, yeah, I, I, I left for, you know, sort of like greener pastures and went to the Czech Republic, which at the time was going through a great um, cultural change still. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it had been, you know, 10 years after the revolution, but the society had not yet really congealed into what it would be. So it was a, a great moment of change. Uh, and it was just a fascinating, fascinating experience. You know, um, all of sort of like Central and Eastern Europe was in flux. Everything was different mm-hmm. every day. Every year, everything looked different. Mm-hmm. And so it was a special time for sure. You know, I, I like to, to joke about how, you know, back then you can meet someone and make a, a, a deal to see them again in like a week or two. And you'd say like 5 p.m. on the corner of you know, this street or that street, and you didn't have cell phones. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, a week later you'd just be there, right? Like, you know, it was really fascinating <laughs> looking days. back on not having the internet be like a regular part of your life mm-hmm. and living in a different place. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just a special, special time. And that, that was, you know, 10 years before um, uh, Bitcoin came around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when when Bitcoin came around, you know, the world already looked pretty different. So that was sort of like just a different, Era mm-hmm. in and of itself but the early Bitcoin days are pretty crazy when I when I created the exchange in in the Czech Republic um, you know it was like monopoly money and people thought it was just the dumbest the dumbest thing uh, in the world um, so it was, it was very hard you can imagine that like you know U- Europe is notoriously difficult to raise uh, startup capital from mm-hmm. So you can imagine how hard it would be to raise startup capital for a business selling monopoly money. Ten years ago. Uh, yeah. so it was just it was just like a really, really hard time. But people were interested. The people who got it really got it mm-hmm. um, and were really excited about it. And it was it was kind of a wild journey.
0: The exchange and then it led you, I guess, eventually to tally to founding Tally. And there was a few projects that you did before that. But before we dive into Tali, because um, today we're, we're going to focus on DAOs, uh, I know this will be the, your nth time <laughs> explaining it. Um, and on previous podcasts, you talk of the concept of DAOs. And obviously, for, the, for people who are listeners, we have a, a, a wide um, range. So DAOs are decentralized autonomous organizations. Um, you talk a lot about how Um, Basically, they existed pre-crypto, right? So we can argue a DAO is not a crypto thing, but more like a transparent, I would say, governance system getting fine-tuned and more practically implemented through the crypto and digital Web3 economy era with the value of decentralization at its core. Uh, I know you don't like defining DAOs, (laughs) but maybe let's, let's try to do it in some shape or form Um, and trying to answer what are they, how do they work today in 2022 and why should we care about them going forward?
6: Yeah, I think the definition part, again, is hard to do. Um, But recently uh, we put on a conference here in New York, um, Dow NYC, Mm -hmm. and someone there gave a really kind of interesting take on it and it went something like a DAO kind of needs at least two out of the three letters. Um, you know, maybe it's these 10 decentralized and it's autonomous, but it's not entirely an organization or maybe it's like a centralized and it's an organization, but maybe it's not autonomous or maybe it's autonomous uh, as an organization, but maybe it's not yet decentralized. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the probably useful takeaway right now, the sort of like practical definition of what it is, is it is people who are trying to organize some sort of system to get some sort of thing done and they don't want to use or they choose not to use some other sort of legacy organizational tool, whether it's like the corporation or an LLC or a Facebook group, right? They, they want to have greater ownership over their organization, um they want to be part of this this movement generally they they want to manage money together in a in a decentralized way and the decentralized way of managing money is important because normally if you created an LLC or you created some sort of corporation, um, one person's name would be on the bank account. Maybe the bank account is in the name of the corporation, but mm-hmm. you know, one person at the corporation has the, the permissions by the bank to take the money in and out. Mm-hmm. And that's a very important distinction, right? Because if you create um, a global organization on the, the internet, and in a Discord chat, for example, and you know, in the Discord chat, you say, you know, for example, myself say, hey, we have a bank account, you know, everybody sends your $1,000 to this bank address. Well, you're even though maybe it's a co- corporation registered wherever I'm based, you're not really going to feel comfortable about the fact that, you know, you essentially all sent your money to me, right? Because you don't really have any recourse, right? Like, you know, $1,000, it's probably not worth you trying to like, do some sort of international lawsuit. Um, The bank won't respond to you. So, you know, as a member, you'll have no idea how much money is in there. In that sort of like design, it's very hard to trust people, right? Mm -hmm. It's very hard to build that kind of organization, Mm -hmm. right? And it's also very expensive to get the money in, right? You're going to pay some sort of international wire fee, you know, and if I run away with the money, um, there's really nothing you can do. You know, the bank's not going to tell you anything. Uh, You don't have any like real jurisdiction or any sort of like rights to it. But with a DAO, you you gain, at least a minimum, a kind of transparency, right? Everyone can see, oh, this is how much money we have. It's in this smart contract, right? Mm -hmm. Like A big piece of the DAOs today is that you have a smart contract that intermediates this organization that intermediates the money, Um, and you know that this account is going to behave according to a certain set of rules around the smart contract. Right. And now some DAOs are more or less decentralized than others. Right. And, you know, I'm sort of looking at the folks that are using multi-sigs instead of like token voting. Um, And in those sorts of organizations, the bank account is maybe run by like five people or, you know, and, you know, you need like three of them to like make an agreement to spend the money. And um, in this case, folks tend to prefer this to a bank account anyway, because now it's at least you know, at least three people have to agree to, to rob you, which is, is, you know, two more than like otherwise. Right. Um, and ideally you can see what's going on. So, you you, you know, when you're getting robbed more or less. Um, so that gives people like a different sense of security.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: But then really what you kind of want to get to is ideally this sort of full decentralization where, Um, any member of the organization at least has some sort of veto say over how the money is spent, right? Where, you know, either it requires a majority of us to agree to give some money to spend the money uh, or it requires some portion of us to like, Disagree. You know, there's these optimistic governance solutions where you know um, one person can say, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a million dollars out," and then all the voters can be like, "Well, no, you're not. Uh, we disagree," and they can stop that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can have a situation where, like, all the voters say, "Yeah, we want to take a million dollars out," and then they affect th- that change together. Right. So, at the very least, that as a kind of structure when we talk about DAOs from the point of view of uh, this, like decentralized, transparent control over a treasury over some amount of money is really a big change from Mm -hmm. what's come before, right? Like before, we always need the state to define the legal status of an organization. Um, We needed centralized entities like banks to manage um, the funds of the organization. Uh, So by disintermediating those two things, Um, We really open up an entirely new kind of like category of organization and an example I like to give pretty often is if you were to create an organization of, you know, 10,000 people in 30 countries Mm -hmm. managing millions of dollars, um, that would be a very large corporation. Right. Yeah. Uh, it would be very expensive to legally incorporate in all 30 countries. For sure. Uh, it'd be very expensive to manage a bank account that had, um, you know, millions of dollars in it. You'd have, you know, some sort of accounting firm, Deloitte or something, you know, <laughs> managing, right. uh, auditing the 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 uh, treasury. Yeah. Um, and this thing would take years to put together. Right. It would take years to to get that paperwork through Be years to organize that. Sure. With DAOs, you can build something that large in a matter of hours, right? Like, mm-hmm. and it sounds funny, but I've done it personally. Mm-hmm. Where you know I've had an idea, and I'd say, "Hey, this is what we're going to do," and within hours, you have thousands of people around the world and hundreds of thousands. Um, you know, one project, you know, had like oh, you know, dope wars had like over a million dollars in just you know a couple hours, right? Um, and Collectively, everyone is building something together that's productive um, and they're being paid and they pay one another and they have all these members and, you know, they didn't pay a dime in in legal fees. Right. Mm -hmm. And they were able to do it in this this really super efficient way. Mm -hmm. So at the the bare minimum, you know, we're talking about organizations that are fundamentally like Internet native corporations, uh, but they scale from. The tiniest thing, right? It could be two people. It could be one person. It scales from one person to a million people with the same um, base structure to it, right? Um, and that sort of that sort of like efficiency of organization is really unprecedented, and, and that is something that you know you know maybe lost on some people, but uh, it really is kind of a, a paradigm shift in terms of what's possible now.
0: Let's um, let's talk about tally. Uh, we haven't gotten to tally yet. So we're talking about an sort of all-in-one platform that builds governance infrastructure for DAOs, essentially an on-chain governance tool, right? So am I saying this correctly? Sort of Tally is the go-to place to start a decentralized community and using tools to vote, propose within, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, Can you Mm -hmm. take us through Tally and also where it is today in terms of the tools it provides? Mm Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, so uh, we like to talk about uh, Tallies being a place where you can like start, um, join, and grow decentralized mm-hmm. organization. Mm-hmm. We are the the front end for a lot of the large DAOs. You know, Gitcoin, ENS, Compound, Uniswap. Right. Um, many more. And we believe uh, right now we, we focus on on-chain governance. We'll, we'll expand to um, off-chain communities in the near future. Mm. Uh, but this is a real place where you would go to create an organization and grow it, right? DAO start as an idea, mm-hmm. right? I want to buy ice cream, ice mm-hmm. cream DAO, right? Mm-hmm. Today is just me. If you can come to Tally, you can start ice cream DAO. And now you have kind of like a seed that can grow. And you can use Tally to to, um, as more people join, do delegations, allow people to see where the other members of Ice Cream DAO um, get more involved in Ice Cream DAO. Then you can raise some money uh, that goes into your uh, on-chain governance and you can see that on Tally and then you can vote on how to spend it um, and then your community can grow. So Tally is really a tool that allows you to like manage and run an organization because organizations are really opaque for, for very hard to understand what's going on. Dow tooling is very new, it's very mature. Um, so there's a lot of like needs that people have and Tally really addresses addresses those, right? Um, now we support kind of specific kinds of DAOs today, but uh, we're growing as well. So we, we start to exp- support more, um, but it's things like NFT DAOs, you, know, you can work on dope wars, nouns DAO, uh, pride punks, DAOs, you know some some of these DAOs. I I actually created Dope Boards and Pride Punk. Right, Dope Boards is a real success. It's a yeah. it's a real big big community of people who are just like doing all sorts of amazing stuff. Yeah, that's it's really amazing. it's really wild. How it took off. Um, yeah. Yeah, it really took off. Really mm. took off. You can participate in nouns DAO and little nouns DAO, um, and these organizations have other governance tools. Uh, but a lot of people like to interact with them through tally. So those are like NFT DAOs. Uh, you can participate in regular ERC twenty style DAOs like Gitcoin mm-hmm. and ENS. Where you know this is an example of you know there are some small DAOs on tally um, niche communities. There's uh, a DAO called. Femboy now, um, which is very interesting. It, uh, I had to look up what Femboy means. I was going yeah. to I'll leave it to the viewer to, <laughs> to do the Googling on that. Um, but they have a community and they have a whole bunch of money and they manage it together um, on tally, which is, you know, wild. And that's cool. You know, we, we're, we don't take opinions as to like what people kind of want to organize around. Mm-hmm. But it's a small community. And then some communities are enormous, right? Like uh, Gitcoin or Uniswap. Mm-hmm. Um, they have enormous communities and, mm-hmm. and their votes have uh, enormous turnouts. Um, Faye, Rari uh, are on tally and they, they have really contentious and frequent votes. Um, so people use tally to do a lot of things.
0: Okay, so today we welcome Laurent Perello, the founder and CEO of Visions of Blockchain. Laurent is a Trondao blockchain advisor who has been a serial entrepreneur for 25 years. Laurent also worked in cloud computing and turned to focus on Web3 since the beginning of 2017. He's passionate about Web3 as well as the metaverse, from what I had listened to, and he's involved with the Web3 community to learn, contribute, and share his knowledge and experience. Laurent, welcome.
7: Uh, nice to to meet you, Nina. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Uh, I'm really excited to share with you uh, a bit of about my uh, web free uh, journey.
0: Your very colorful rainbow palette of experiences. You seem to be um, quite uh, equipped with, <laughs> with a lot of experience. So maybe can you can you just take us a little bit through your bio and um, also maybe take us through your path to crypto and the web3 space
7: yeah 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 sure uh, i'm uh, 49 years old mm. uh, serial entrepreneur since uh, 27 years
2: mm.
7: so it's it's really uh, part of my uh, life mm-hmm. I, I had uh, the chance to uh Start several business in several domain from uh, publishing. My first business was um, I, 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 I published some uh, magazine. Mm-hmm. I created also marketing agency, uh, event uh, agency. It was the beginning of... Uh, uh, internet adoption in France, and we were one of the first to uh, offer uh, an online edition. Mm-hmm. So
2: mm-hmm.
7: I, I had the chance to uh, uh, discover the, this fascinating uh, uh, innovation. I'm really fascinated by uh, all the kind of uh, innovation.
0: Mm-hmm. So this was, was this like the mid uh, late nineties? yeah,
7: yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah.
7: Okay. And I had the chance also to fail uh
0: that's good. No,
2: yeah, good yeah
7: yeah 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 yeah. i'm really proud uh of it mm-hmm. in fact because i learned much more uh after my uh first uh, business bankruptcy than uh, mm. uh during uh, nine years of uh, success and um, i restarted the uh, to the new business the day after i closed the uh, this business um advising um Company and startup in their uh, business development strategy, mm-hmm. uh, also uh, consumer relationship management and um, business process management. I'm uh, I'm in love with uh, process and automation, <laughs> and uh, I had the chance to collaborate. Uh, or uh, to be one of the first, uh, let's say, uh, cloud computing uh, mm-hmm. pioneer, mm-hmm. Uh, working closely with uh, uh, Google at this moment, advising uh, big uh, companies in their digital transformation and cloud co- computing collaborative called cloud computing solution, mm-hmm. uh, what we call now uh, Web two, right, right, yeah, and uh, one day. Uh, I decided to, uh, to move from uh, this, uh, let's say, uh, corporate, uh, world, mm-hmm. uh, feeling that, uh, in fact, uh, people there were using my neuron and my energy and my commitment mm-hmm. just uh, to make uh, more profits.
0: Of course. Yeah.
7: Um, it was a hard moment for me, um, because it was uh, highly, uh, Profitable uh, in a financial point of view, mm-hmm. but uh, when you you have to uh, cooperate on a daily basis, train people, and you know that they uh, will not be there in three or six months, mm-hmm. uh, and they don't know it, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of lie for me, mm-hmm. and it was really hard to manage this uh, this feeling. So I decided to quit and to offer my services to uh, uh, web two startup, sharing uh, not only my uh, my knowledge and expertise uh, in uh, digital uh, transformation or business process uh, management, Mm -hmm. uh, business development, but also my uh, uh, entrepreneur uh, journey, trying to prevent also failure, Mm -hmm. because when uh, you have failed, you know. you, you, you are able to easily um, identify the you know low signal mm-hmm. uh, saying uh, <laughs> take care <Yeah. laughs> the collapse is coming mm. uh, it's just a question of time mm-hmm. and one day a friend of mine I was living in Morocco at this moment in Casablanca mm. oh, and wow. yeah yeah I, I, I lived in uh, several countries the last uh, 15 years mm. and he shared with me the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper
0: mm-hmm.
7: and for me it was uh,
0: the aha moment with the
7: uh yeah uh, <laughs> much more than this uh, because mm. I, 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 I had the chance to have uh, several aha moments <laughs> in my web free journey I think we will come back later about it but this moment was um, Particularly important for me, I have okay. a few moments in my life that Definitely. really uh, contribute to who I am, mm-hmm. and and this moment was really uh, is really a part of uh, uh, this. Uh, I, I have to say, I'm not a developer, I'm not a technical guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, everything I I I know, uh, it's uh, it's uh, you know. Uh, Constant uh, um, learning process. Mm-hmm. I learn on a daily basis uh, since years.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a
7: kind of obsession.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: Uh, I can't sleep well mm-hmm. if I, I don't uh, learn something new wow. uh, each yeah. day. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I'm in love with sleeping well. Uh, yes. I'm lucky enough to sleep well.
0: For of course. <laughs>
7: yeah. And uh, so I, I spend a, a moment, you know, to try to understand this uh, really high-level, uh, tricky, technical, tricky stuff. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
7: doing a lot of research, and uh, and at the moment I say, okay, both well, you, you you will never um, deeply uh, understand everything, mm-hmm. but in fact, it's not a problem. Uh, let's just read it again. Mm-hmm. Put all these. Te- Technical part on the side mm-hmm. and read it as uh, if it's a philosophical uh, postula. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm in love uh, with uh, philosophy too.
0: Yeah, actually, so, sorry, sorry to intervene here, but uh, I yeah. did actually listen to a, a Twitter Space conversation um, that a recent one that you had with uh, with a few with a few folks. And, um, you said that you took every Saturday, this is is for the Satoshi Nakamoto paper. Um, actually I remember this because I also, for the Satoshi Nakamoto paper, I mean, I couldn't just read it once. I had to go over and over it. And you actually said that you took every Saturday to, to go over it because every time you read it, it was something different, right? Like you learned it, it was more Um, you understood it better and different every single time you went through an iteration.
7: Yeah, 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 correct. Uh, You know, it's my uh, ritual now.
0: I mean, that's some serious dedication.
7: (laughs) Yeah, but it's for me, it's also um, a gift to to myself to spend Mm. uh, one hour per week Mm. uh, with myself and myself Mm. and myself. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Rethinking uh, our society, uh, human behavior, innovation. Yes. Uh, yes. politics. Yes.
0: Uh, Everything really because we're such at a, at a melting sort of, or just at a crossroads now. Well, I, I actually have to say we, we share somewhat, somewhat similar paths. I mean, I, I, worked on wall street and, and was also in the corporate finance and just, just the whole corporate scene having bounced around some, you know, big name companies and also through different countries. Um, you know, also European. Um, and at one point I realized it was no longer what I wanted to do and then have it had a family. Um, but it's interesting because you, you say you're saying what you're going through now, you know, thinking about all this, I I can't help, but do the same, especially also I post this post or mid or whatever this pandemic is so much is changing. And I wonder, is it maybe a function of our age? You know, you say, okay, you're 49. I'm, I'm approaching 45, um, that we're more aware of what. To really, what, what our purpose really should be in this world, you know what I mean?
7: You, you know, I I think for um, a lot of people, yes, this um, disruptive moment forces them to uh, consider uh, the, their life and more than just their life, the uh, yeah. sense of life uh, differently. Hmm. Uh, you know, since I'm really young, as I remember, I was six years old, uh, mm. starting to, uh, you know, um, trying to, uh, at first, um, I- I- identify list least uh, all important question. I should try to get uh, at least a beginning of answer mm. to give a, 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 a real deep sense to my life. Mm-hmm. Observing people, uh, their behavior, mm-hmm. their emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I I fall in love with uh, literature.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: I I I started to write my first poem when I was seven, eight years old. Oh wow! And yeah, yeah writing uh, helped me to uh, escape uh, course, yeah. the, the, the brutality mm-hmm. of life
2: mm-hmm. of
7: our society mm-hmm. and. Um, To really uh, uh, dare to dive on each emotion, uh, sentiment, um, um, interrogation, you know, not just uh, living uh, at, uh, let's say, uh, at at the surface, Mm -hmm. but diving Mm -hmm. deeply. Mm -hmm. And uh, no, it's also something uh, I, I bring in what I do. Mm-hmm. uh it it it's not i used to say you know uh, innovating is really something uh, that fascinating and trying uh, to contribute to offer uh, an alternative you know we often talk about disruption it's it's a term a word i i i don't use to apply uh, regarding mm-hmm. what i do because what we all are building because it, 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 it's um it's kind of, uh, you know, uh, antagonism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, yeah, yeah I, I prefer to talk about, uh, to use uh, the word alternative mm-hmm. because I, I don't want to force anyone to uh, adopt. I want to say, hey, have a look. Mm-hmm. Something different is possible. Right. Uh, and it, 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 it changed uh, radically uh, uh, all current uh, approach, mm-hmm. you know, we face, uh, you know, some recently last two years, we were constantly in this, uh, you know, uh, speech, forcing people to do, to apply. And yes. I, I, I rather prefer to uh, uh, offer uh, uh, an alternative. And, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, as I'm fascinated by innovation. Uh, I used to uh, be a speaker at the cloud computing uh, time. Mm. And uh, we we, we used to say we have to evangelize. Mm -hmm. And uh, my main uh, conference was about uh, a a, a little story of uh, collaborative uh, innovation Mm -hmm. uh, going from the prehistoric time to uh, nowadays Mm -hmm. and showing how uh, it has changed and um, how together is the main uh, uh, important um, yeah. part of the this concept, and uh, it's it's something now I, I I bring in what I do and I spread <laughs> as I, as I can, telling to people if if we have a look to uh, humanity's story, um, taking part to this web free movement innovation mm-hmm. is uh, taking part of a unique moment in y- humanity history. We haven't seen such a uh, moment in fact, you know, because by the past innovation w- w- was bring by uh, government or big corporation and right. then going to in- individuals. You no. Know, and, and at first, you know, most, um, develop countries and now and then the other one Mm -hmm. no it's everywhere at the same time for everyone right if you know nothing it's not a problem just start learning five minutes a day Mm -hmm. in a few weeks you will know much more than 80 percent of the population Mm -hmm. and in a few months much more than 95 percent of the population Mm -hmm. so um When people say it's still early, it's always regarding, uh, you know, the the token crypto valuation. Honestly, uh, Mm. I I, I don't care. Mm. Uh, It's much more um, important for the humanity as a a perpetual experience, you know, in several Mm -hmm. domains. When you consider this, you don't have the same commitment and behavior in this uh, web free uh, ecosystem.
0: Yeah, well you're also one of the judges, right and in, in the recent yeah. uh, also in the recent I don't know how many hackathons Tron has, but in, in the recent Tron hackathon, I suppose this is also one of the ways for you to discover new projects.
7: Exactly. yeah yeah exactly. Uh, yeah this year we have launched what we call the Grand uh, hackathon mm-hmm. uh, with a free season this year. Mm-hmm. The first one was uh, in uh, March-April. We -hmm. have just announced the winner of Season 2 last week Mm -hmm. uh, with a really significant significant, uh, growth with more than 200 uh, projects qualified. Mm -hmm. And uh, between uh, these two seasons, I have uh, engaged a lot of uh, projects to uh, participate. It's also a way to... uh, uh contribute to our ecosystem growth mm-hmm. and for sure uh, yeah yeah it's it's a valuable uh, uh a source of um you know um I, I was really impressed by a s- few projects and um during the, the Hackathon as a judge I, I can't uh, contribute or help uh, mm-hmm. uh help them. But mm-hmm. some, uh, I, I plan to uh, do what. Uh, what can I do to help them really to deliver their promise? Because uh, it's it's ab- some projects uh, bring a solution which are absolutely needed in my point point of view, like Holochain chain tech project with this decentralized uh, email and decentralized chat. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, and, you know, having engaged uh, <laughs> big, big companies to use at this moment, it was uh, Google apps mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, with a Gmail, uh, let's say pro version mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and knowing. Uh, uh, how centralized it is, how dependent dependent you are when you you use such a solution. Yeah. Uh, yes, I'm <laughs> totally excited to see this uh, this uh, new solution. Yeah, and it, it's only in my opinion a, a great way. To uh, contribute to mass adoption, not being focused on uh, crypto, uh, you know, decent, the, uh, decentralization, uh, blockchain, uh, web three, but uh, with uh, uh, improving basic solution that everybody uses on a daily basis, yes. email, uh, uh, chat, yes. uh, improving uh, privacy mm-hmm. uh, at the highest level. It's right. absolutely needed.
0: Today we're hosting Matthew Baudet, the software architect and founder of the Linera Protocol. He's former blockchain researcher at LibraNovi and former software engineer at Facebook. Matthew is a specialist in BFT consensus protocols, cryptographic protocols, and formal verification his experience in blockchain infrastructure, AI infrastructure, developer infrastructure, security consulting and startup development. Matthew, welcome to Blockchain Recorded.
8: Hey, uh, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for coming and uh, judging or actually reading your background, um, you have a extremely rich computer science background, so very technical with, I believe, over nine years at Facebook. Is that correct?
8: Uh, yes, that's right. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So you were a researcher at a uh, blockchain researcher at Libra and um, and also software engineer at Facebook. So lots of software engineering and um, looking at your LinkedIn, you even had a PhD in computer science. Um, let's just start by having you take us through your background journey. But actually, before you do so, I just wanted to um, clarify quickly the meaning of BFT consensus protocols. So that's BFT means Byzantine fault tolerance consensus protocol for those of who are not familiar with the acronym. So Matthew, with that in mind, um, please. Okay.
8: So, uh, I mean, personally, I've always been passionate uh, about science and in particular computer science so, um, and NAS. So, um, so my background, yeah, and I, during my PhD, I started uh, being serious about computer security, and uh, I ended up doing a, a security agency, then, then a startup, and then, uh, and then Facebook, which brought me to California. Uh, and I spent there nine years. First, I was a software engineer, and then I was a, a blockchain researcher at, at um, in the blockchain project of Facebook, which uh, which was uh, called Libra initially, and and then gem And uh, yeah, and then recently I uh, I, I started uh, Linear, which is really uh, like really a new adventure, and uh, and uh, also also rooted in the research I did at Facebook. So uh, yeah, it's all very exciting so okay so you were asking about bft consensus protocols so i guess i can uh, yeah i can i can try to define that Um,
0: (laughs) no i was just trying to clarify but yeah go go for it
8: okay all right okay so so first protocols protocols are are like programs that are meant to be to be executed in a distributed uh setup so uh, with Mm -hmm. lots of of, lots of machines right Mm -hmm. and they usually they are communicating over the network uh and now like and so what can happen is you, um, you may want to know that the protocol keeps working if there are uh, some kind of faults uh, in the system. Uh, so it could be that some of the machines are crashing or maybe the network stopped functioning. And um, so BFT, Byzantine Fault Tolerance, is kind of the highest ranked, I would say, tolerance to faults. So where you resist not only crashes and um, disruptive networks, but you also want to resist malicious nodes uh, up to a point, so perhaps a third or um, slightly less than half of the of the of the nodes that are participating to the, to the protocols um, might be completely deviating from the protocol and trying to kind of attack everybody else. So it's a pretty strong uh, security property by some tolerance. Mm-hmm. And now consensus protocol. So consensus is basically what you're trying to achieve with the protocol. And so, in this case, um, and in the case of blockchain, um, so it means you try. You have a protocol in trying to agree on something, on a number of decisions. And in the case of blockchains, uh, that will be typically what is the next block in the chain of blocks. So yeah, mm-hmm. the protocol to agree uh, on things with a high fault tolerance against mm-hmm. malicious nodes.
0: Um, yeah, it's it's you know we're we're shooting these terms right. So latency, and then of course scalability, and it's uh, hard not to allude to the blockchain trilemma, right? Which um, is a uh-huh. <laughs> pretty pretty well known concept that was conceptualized by Vitalik uh, Buterin in 2016. So that's that's for all the listeners that haven't not heard the term yet. It was uh, it was conceptualized by him, and it addresses three main challenges developers face in creating a blockchain or just in general, which in the space, which are what we just talked about, right? One is scalability. uh, The second one is decentralization. And the third one is security. So um, the goal obviously is not to compromise any of these three facets. Although the way Bitcoin and Ethereum started is that they basically started with trading off scalability right so putting decentralization and security ahead but now the story may be different how do you see the solution to this trilemma stand now in 2022 uh, with all the upgrades going on I mean I know this it's, it can be a difficult question but with the merge and et cetera et cetera and um, yeah how do you see this do you see a solution to this trilemma is there a solution is it even possible?
8: Right. Yeah. So that's a bit, another big question. Um, it's a big I one, would say so first, it always, always. Uh, I would say always depends on uh, what like on the, the the meaning of, uh, of of each of the concepts. I mean, the the, the what we put behind the words. Uh, mm. So, for instance, so scalability. If if you um, don't need a low confirmation time, mm-hmm. so low finality in layer one, then uh, if you if you just want throughput and, and low fees. People who are working on, on uh, ZK rollups, they, they really think they have it
2: mm-hmm.
8: uh, like, uh, using the, the, the magics of, uh, of uh, cryptography and, uh, and validity proofs. They are able to compress a large number of transactions into a short or uh, constant size validity proofs. And that just need to be verified on, on the layer one. And yeah. And so, and so in this case, they, uh, they, that, that, that is one of the favorite solution, I think, of the community. Uh, when it comes to solving the blockchain trauma, now of course I'm going to say, uh, what if we actually care about the finality time in layer one, and, and and perhaps because we we are targeting some of the applications we we just mentioned, and in this case, um, personally, uh, my my approach is to look again uh, how would we define decentralization, for instance, and in the past it's. Oftentimes, it's been understood as just the sheer number of validators, mm-hmm. and with that definition, I I do think you can't you can't really have a low latency uh, system at scale, mm-hmm. just because the overhead of the of the coordination between a large number of validators with high throughput is going to to be to be um, to not to not be sustainable, but uh, to be hard to sustain, and also also I would say. Large number of validators with commodity hardware. Also, it was the constraint that people have been, uh, have, have been really working uh, and and not really criticizing, mm-hmm. not, uh, not not really um, uh, second guessing so far. And so, but I think it's not the end of the story. There's there's um, there's room to investigate uh, notion of decentralizations for large validators, and that's what we're doing at at Linear.
0: Mm-hmm. But do you think? It's solvable. I mean, okay. I know. I know you said in terms of um, what what the terms are behind scalability. So I don't know if you were to, if you were just to say scalability, speed, and yeah. Again, w- decentralization is a big one. Security, obviously. I guess yeah. Um, it, but if it's if you were to have independent, I guess independent computers running on the network, is it is it even solvable?
8: I mean, I think I think uh, I would say short answer. Um, nothing is impossible if, uh, unless you see a proof of impossibility and, and and, uh, and then you would have to look at the assumptions of the proof and exactly mm-hmm. what, what's behind all the terms. Sure. And I think uh, ZK, l- like I said, Z- ZK rollups. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like the, the kind of cryptography that, uh, that uh, uh, is being developed is one example of uh, something that looked completely impossible and, and seemed to be in fact increasingly uh, becoming feasible. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah.
8: So, and, and, uh, and in fact, we, there could be applications of uh, validity proofs beyond the career for instance, to strengthen auditing and, and other kinds of systems, um mm-hmm. including low latency systems. So uh, so I am I'm, I'm personally I'm, I'm relatively optimistic, but of course uh, uh, there's still uh, some some work ahead of us.
0: Sure. So let's talk Linera. Am I pronouncing that correctly? L- Linera? Because that's the uh,
8: Yes, Linera, yeah. Uh-huh
0: so if I understand correctly from from the research that I've done you're you're building a new blockchain protocol with low latency no mempool and linear linear scaling that will be secured by proof of stake mm-hmm. and run by fully audible and accountable validators and internally sharded did, that's mm-hmm. a mouthful <laughs> did, did I summarize that yeah. correctly
8: okay yeah that, that was a lot um, um, yeah this is this is a, a new um uh, so this is a new layer one that we are uh, mm-hmm. developing. Uh, it's based on, uh, on on research that I uh, that started at, when I was a researcher at Facebook, and mm-hmm. uh, initially was only targeting uh, large scale, low latency payments. So it was mm-hmm. uh, the original system, the ancestor of Linera, was just was a was a research project for for low latency uh, payments, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, yeah, and so we uh, and so we kept the the general architecture. Uh, which was uh, I think really new and really interesting, and generalize and are generalizing this uh, to allow um, to to make it look like uh, like a general multi chain system uh, and and so like as you said um, the the validators uh, in in what 's interesting is that they are internally sharded so mm-hmm. so it 's a multi chain system, and each validator has all the chains, and that mm-hmm. 's going to be a major difference if we compare to um, to a traditional, traditional blockchain sharding in the, uh, where uh, you have more like a, a collection of independent blockchains mm-hmm. uh, with different sets of validators. In the case of Linear, uh, so we what we're looking at is, is validators uh, that uh, have all the chains, each of them has all the chains and, um, and they, they are sharded, but it's not visible from, from the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much like a, a normal internet service you are you know it's sharded but uh, you as a user uh you don't you don't know what are the
0: shards mhm and apart from that difference um where else do you differ from sort of the latest generation layer ones
8: uh huh yeah so i mean this is this is the main difference uh, um the latest generation layer ones they what they are, um investigating is, is generally more how to optimize the, the latency and throughput of a single chain hmm. uh, using uh, really uh, a number of, uh, of, of engineering techniques, uh, um, s- such as parallel execution. Um, but um, it's con- they are considering a single chain and, and in which uh, the user transactions uh, have to be executed sequentially, at least from the point of view of the outside world. It needs to be a sequence of uh, other transaction, and so that puts um, essentially a limit to how uh, how fast you can you can after you exhaust all the ideas, all the optimization. Uh, there, there's always a limit based on like for a particular architecture. There's always uh, there's always a cap on the transaction per second mm-hmm. because it's, it's a single chain. And so uh, in Linear, we are looking at a different problem. We are looking at how to have many chains communicate with each other extremely efficiently.
2: Mm-hmm.
8: And uh, so that it's very cheap to add new chains. In fact, we, in INERA we uh, want to make it uh, possible. In fact, it's going to be encouraged uh, for users to have their own chain mm-hmm. so that they, they can create new blocks and, for instance, move money out of their account by creating new blocks uh, with uh, extremely low latency uh, due to this particular setup where they... They own a chain, their own chain. so so um, yeah, this, the, there are there are some 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 really uh, big differences. It's, it's actually um, mostly complementary efforts, I would say.
0: Thank you so much awesome. for for your time and and your work contributions to the space. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to our guest as well as thank you everyone for listening. A big thanks goes to Coin Market League for co-sponsoring this episode. Thank you also to the Baria Music team for providing their music. You can check out their latest album on bariamusic.com. You can find all supporting information on our website, blockchainrecorded.com, and listen to us on Google, Apple, and Amazon Podcasts, as well as Spotify, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Stay healthy and tuned for our next episode.